going to be looking at what it means to have peace with God and to walk in peace. Oftentimes, peace is defined as an absence of conflict. And in, in, in a very real way, that's still a pretty good definition. But the difference that I want you to begin to understand is that the, a biblical peace is not just an absence of external conflict. A biblical peace means that you stand in a place where in your soul and in your spirit, you are not in conflict. In uh, February, uh, second week of February of 1992, I was 24 years old, young pastor, uh, God had recently called me to, to First Baptist uh, May, Texas, and, and even with the stuff that we were struggling with, with our daughter, uh, I guess uh, she was a, a couple years old at that point. We were at, I'll have to think back, this was actually in 1990, not 92, no, 92, uh, Katie had gone in to have a catheter replaced. She was only about 10 pounds. She was a little over six months old. And they were going to need to start doing dialysis on her because her kidneys were not working well. And um, so they went in to put a catheter in. And the day after they placed the catheter, she began to get sick. Apparently, they had, she was so tiny that when they placed this little tube inside her abdomen, they had nicked a, a bowel in there. And so it had caused an infection. And she went into the, the ICU, and they told us that she probably wouldn't live through that stay. In fact, they talked to us at that point. The, the doctor who was the lead doctor talked to us about not uh, doing any kind of life-saving measures, and we felt like at that point we wanted to move ahead uh, with those life-saving measures, and she was only in ICU for two days. She was right back out of ICU, uh, rebounded well, and, and was doing well, but she had gone back to, to a room on the floor and had been there a couple days and she's having a lot of congestion in her lungs and she had to have these lung treatments, uh, two different types of treatments. One of them where you bang on her chest and bang on her backs and uh, then another treatment where they would uh, come in, the respiratory therapist, put a tube down her nose and have to kind of vacuum out excess stuff that you had shaken loose. We were sitting, uh, I was sitting on the floor playing cards, Susan was sitting next to her bed when uh, the respiratory therapist came in and did that procedure, and, and of course, it was always hard on her, Katie always cried, and you know, you're talking about a, a six and a half month old, right? And uh, so, you know, of course, we expected her to cry, and when they finished the procedure, the respiratory therapist left, and, and I got up to go check on Katie, and something clearly was off, something was wrong, and uh, she began to turn blue, her eyes rolled back in her head, and... Uh, we uh, ran out of the hallway and called for the nurse. They came down, and, and the whole scene just changed. They brought a crash cart down. They kicked us out of the room. They had to intubate her, put a breathing tube in, and, and begin to go to work on her to try to save her life in those moments. They got her at least somewhat stabilized and took her back down to an ICU room. And I remember one of the first things I wanted to do was to reach out for prayer uh, back at home, so to speak. And so uh, I went to... Uh, went out to the pay phone, to the phone booth. Any of y'all remember what those are? Okay. I went out to one of the pay phones and, and made a collect call to Howard Payne University. Uh, I, I wonder how many universities would accept a collect call. I made a collect call to Howard Payne University, the only way we can make a phone call at that point. And Dr. Art Allen answered the phone. And Dr. Allen was one of my uh, Bible professors there. And, and I remember going over with Dr. Allen what had just happened and, and asking him to pray. And he was pastoring at that time at a little Baptist church, Salt Creek Baptist Church outside of early Texas. And he, he promised that he'd have his church pray. It was a Wednesday. He was going to have his church pray. 
and he was going to make sure that he let Dr. Rainey and some of the other professors know so that they could be in prayer for Katie. And then Dr. Allen asked me a question. He said, well, how are y'all doing? And uh, well, I started to recount everything I just kind of told him about Katie, and he said, no. He said, I'm, you, you've told me about how Katie's doing. How are you and Susan doing? And it caught me off guard. And I remember on the pay phone, they're sitting in that phone booth, pausing for a moment, and I said, Dr. Allen, we're actually okay. I said, the same God who was in charge yesterday when Katie was doing far better than they could ever imagine, that same God is still in charge today. So we're okay. At that moment, I really saw and understood what it meant to have a peace in the midst of the storm. My peace was not based on the circumstances, what was going on around me. My peace was not based on what the doctors were telling us. My peace was not even rooted in whether or not Katie was going to live because that was certainly up in the air at that moment. Peace was found in my relationship with Christ. Understanding that he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I want to begin our message today with a passage from the Old Testament. And then uh, we're going to take a, a quick look at a New Testament passage. But I, the, the focus of the sermon today is going to be rooted in Psalm 24. Matthew read part of this for you earlier. And Matthew told me earlier today, he said, this is my second, his second favorite psalm in all of Scripture. Hear these words. It, the, the word peace doesn't appear in this passage. I understand that. But I want you to hear these words because I believe that this is where we'll find real lasting peace. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he has laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. When we come to a place where we recognize that he is the king of glory and that he has offered us and entered into a relationship with us, I believe it is then that we will truly understand what it means to have Peace. See, peace is not just based on circumstances. It can't be. Because the third fruit of the Spirit in that list in Galatians 25, fruit of the Spirit, something that the Spirit can produce in you, the third item mentioned, the third characteristic is peace. Love, joy, peace. So if the Spirit can produce peace inside of you, certainly it's not rooted on outer circumstances. It's rooted on something that God can do inside of here. 
I want us to walk through this text together and, and look at the three primary paragraphs of this text because I think that, that that's the best way to, to examine where we find this trust and this peace in the midst of all of it. The first paragraph is verses 1 and 2, where essentially we are going to find peace in this life when we recognize that God is who he says he is and we worship him. Worshiping him in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. See, we get all caught up in the things of this world. And oftentimes that's what disrupts our peace. Broken relationships with one another, a loss of, of, of income or uh, difficulties or fights and quarrels among us in this world. All of those things can disrupt peace. But when we pause long enough to recognize that none of it is mine, none of it, the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord Everything that we see was created by God. Everything. The earth and all that's above the earth. It's all created by him. It's all his. And when we pause long enough to recognize that everything is his, that means everything that I seem to think is under my control in my household in my bank account or in my little world, I, I tend to think of, of that as being mine. But then I look around me at what all the other stuff out there. When we recognize that all of it was created by him, all of it belongs to him. Everything is his. Everything. And the second, everybody is under his authority. Who that walks on the face of this earth is not under the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every person, every one, every body falls under his authority. He has created every one and he rules over every one. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, all belong to him. He is the king. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He rules over it all. Now, in, in theology, various theologians throughout history can, can argue and discuss over how much freedom God has given or allowed those whom he created in his image, humans in particular, how much freedom he has, he has given us to make decisions in this world. And, and I, I lean toward he's given us a lot of freedom. But it's because he's given it to us. Because he's the Lord. He can take that freedom back at any moment. He is the ruler. He is the authority. He is the creator. When we recognize that and, and begin to let go and realize that we're not in control, he is. We can worship him for who he is. We can celebrate who he is. And we can humble ourselves before him for who he is. And it puts us in a position where it, we don't have to worry about it. In fact, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to worry. Jesus asked us that question. He said, why are you anxious for anything? Be anxious for nothing. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, how many of you can add a, a foot to your height? How many of you can add an inch to your height by worrying about it? 
How many of you can add a day to your life by worrying about it? I'd argue you might subtract some days from your life by worry, but you're not going to add any. And so when we come to a place of absolute trust and worshiping him, recognizing who he is and worshiping him in all of his majesty, then we put ourselves in a position where we can find rest and peace. And then second, verses three through six, you have the, the, the psalmist David ask this question, who is it? that can ascend the mountain of the Lord. One of the Psalms of the Ascent, who can come into the presence of God? If God is, is that big, if he is that awesome, if he is that mighty, if he is that holy, who can come into his presence? It's somewhat of a rhetorical question because ultimately, when he follows up with these words, who may stand in his holy place, we have to confess that none of us are holy None of us can come into his holy place and stand in our, own, uh, in our own way, in our own flesh, because of our sin. He, he's he's going to go on to say, only those who have a clean hands and a pure heart are able to stand before God in his holy place. The greatest conflict, the one thing that separates you and I from a holy God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one thing that will keep us in conflict with him is our sin. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin is a conflict with the nature of God. And so the only way that someone can stand in the holy place, the only one that someone can come into the presence of God and stand with peace, not conflict between a holy God and, and, and a sinful soul, is if the sin is dealt with, if the sin has been cleansed. And so for every single individual in this world who has sinned, Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are going to be in continual conflict with God until we do something about our sin. He owns it all. He is a holy God. He is awesome and mighty. But we can't come into his presence without conflict. There will never be peace between me and God until my sin is dealt with. I can't ascend the mount of the Lord. I can't stand in his holy place unless I have clean hands and a pure heart. And I haven't told any untruths. Well, that leaves me in a mess. How am I ever going to find peace if I can't stand in the presence of God because of sin in my life? Somehow that sin has to be dealt with. The psalmist tells us right here that the only hope we have is to receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. My hope of having my sin dealt with, of having my my hands clean and my heart purified is that God somehow offer me his righteousness. That somehow God, God cleanse me. Somehow it, it, then I can stand in his righteousness, not in my own. Well, how are we going to do that? How do we receive that? See, we're only going to find peace when we come to him and ask for his cleansing and his righteousness. Look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Those who come to God and ask 
Asking him for cleansing requires first a recognition that I'm a sinner. An agreement with him that my sin is separating me from God. And, and then, only then, once I, I recognize that God is who he says he is, that I'm a sinner who can't stand in the presence of God except he do something, then I can ask for him to cleanse my sin. I can ask him to do something inside of me. And that's where the Prince of Peace steps on the scene. That's why Isaiah says that Jesus will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He will bring peace to us. And this is where I want to take our excursus. If you're reading a commentary and, and, and you're reading the, the flow of the commentary and all of a sudden they, they take a big section out, uh, maybe to talk about some particular point, they'll call it an excursus. It's where you focus in on a particular point and really highlight it for a short period of time. I want to do that. I want to focus in on this idea that our only hope for righteousness, our only, the only way that we can receive the righteousness of God so that we can be at peace with God is through Christ. And our excursus today is going to take us to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 18. If you'll read that text with me. The scripture says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hear this. For he is our peace. Peace is not found in a thing. Peace is not found in a philosophy. Peace is not found in a doctrine. Peace is found in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both, both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Amen. Amen. This passage, Paul is, is writing to Gentiles in Ephesus who he's trying to help them understand that the same God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that same God who had been at work through Israel all of those years has been at work through them as well now and has offered them hope of salvation. Now, I don't want to get away from the point. I don't want to get too complicated into in where he went with these two covenants because they both land in the same place. 
all of Israel, whoever had identified with Israel, who, who claimed a connection to Israel from history up until that point, all the Israelites, all of the Jews had one hope of peace, one hope of eternal salvation, and that hope is Jesus. And though Paul describes them as they were near, <laughs> They were part of Israel. They, they, they were worshiping Yahweh. They, they, they worshiped Jehovah God. And so some, in some ways they were nearer, and yet they still had to take that step to trust Christ and his blood for eternal salvation and for peace. You, Gentiles, you were further off. But it didn't matter because God brought you near by the blood of Christ. I want you to notice three quick things about this because this is a, a rich text, but three things. If Jesus is our peace, we have to understand that without him, as he says in verse 12, we are without hope and without God. Without Christ, the Prince of Peace, we have no hope of eternal life. That doesn't mean a little bit. That doesn't mean some. Far too often... either working with a family or dealing with a, with a maybe I'm not the pastor at, at, at a particular service of someone who's passed away. We want to come to, to a, a funeral service and, and we want to try to find some way that, that there's hope for the person, whether they ever confess Christ or not. We always, we always want to you know, think that, well, they were, they, you know, they didn't really go to church, and, and they didn't, you know, they never really committed to the Lord, but, but they, were, they were a good person. And, 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 and when we get to the graveside, we always want to find some way to push someone over, over into heaven. But Scripture is so clear. Without Christ, there is no hope. None. Jesus said there's, there's one way to the Father, and that's through me. That's the downside. But the positive side is that in Christ, there is hope. And he goes on to say in verse 13 that you, as he speaks to those who are believers, in the churches in and around Ephesus, as he writes to them, he says, you were brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's a, there's a principle here I want you to see. Sometimes we think that it's easier for religious people to come to faith. That's not the truth. In fact, oftentimes it's harder for those who are religious to come to faith. Sometimes it's those who are farther off that see their need and they understand that they need Christ. But it really doesn't matter whether before you come to Christ, if you're this close to salvation or you're this far from salvation, you're not there until you put your faith and hope in the blood of Christ. And it is in Christ, in Jesus alone, that you have hope of eternal life. It is through his blood that you are reconciled to his heavenly Father. It's his blood that washes your sin away. It is putting your faith and trust in him that his death on the cross has cleansed you of your sin so that now you can enter into the holy place. You can ascend to the mountain of a holy God. You can stand in his presence when and only when you've been covered by the blood of Christ. 
He then becomes our peace. Our peace is found in Christ. And that's where you have that, that statement at the beginning of verse 14, for he is our peace. He's dealt with the law. He's dealt with the commandments. He's dealt with the regulations. He's dealt with the religion. He's, he's dealt with all of that. He, he, he's, he's cleared the table. He's gotten rid of all the distractions. And he simply says, if you would come to me and trust me and put your faith in me, you will have life. You'll have peace. Only in Jesus Christ. He is our peace. You won't find peace anywhere else in this world. You'll find moments of peace, but you won't find the kind of peace that gives you that settledness of soul in the midst of the storms anywhere outside of Christ. I, I hear people, even, even recently, I heard someone talking about how they, they uh, struggled through life and they, they'd been in and out of, uh, they visited churches and, and they knew the, the gospel but they just weren't really ready to give their life to Christ, but they eventually just realized they had this huge emptiness inside of them that could not be filled any other way. There's, there's something inside of us that won't be satisfied outside of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Flip back with me to Psalm 24, and we'll finish up there, because how do we get there? How do we arrive at that place? Verse 6 in Psalm 24 said, Such is this generation who will inquire of him and who will seek his face. We have to come to a place in our lives where we confess that God is who he says he is, that outside of, of Christ we have no ability to come into the presence of God. We're separated our sin has left blood on our hands and a stain on our heart so that our heart's no longer pure. And we can't come into the presence of a holy God until our sin is dealt with. And so we come to him and ask him for his righteousness. We humble ourselves before him and his face alone and say, God, I can't get there on my own. Lord, I need you and I need your salvation. Then and only then will we find the peace that's promised in the manger. When the angels declared the peace on earth and goodwill toward men, they weren't talking about there weren't going to be any more wars. If, if they were, then Jesus contradicted them as soon as he began to teach. But what they were saying is that the Prince of Peace is coming and he'll bring peace to your soul. And then finally... We have to trust in his mighty power. Verse 7 through 10 is, is just a celebration of God's glory in a lot of ways. Once we've entered into that relationship with him and we can ascend to the mount of the Lord, we can stand in the presence of God because our sin has been dealt with, he calls us as his people to look up, lift your heads to the gates, rise up ancient doors and the king of glory will come in. Keep your eyes focused. Look up. Last night, my wife and I had a date night. 
And we attended the, uh, I've already talked to some of you about this, we attended a play uh, that was put on by Lake Country Christian School where our own Jairus Wolf was the lead. Now, I am not and have never watched uh, a cartoon that used to come across my TV when my kids were little called SpongeBob SquarePants. Okay, some of you had grandkids that watched that apparently. Some of you are of the generation that actually watched SpongeBob growing up. Well, Jairus was SpongeBob. And Jairus was a magnificent SpongeBob. And there were several great life lessons in, in this play that they put on. But the one that was a reminder to me, and I pray will stick with me, was this one. SpongeBob would get up each morning and say, what, what would he say, Nathan? It's going to be the best day ever. Today is going to be the best day ever. And of course, he had all the naysayers around him to say, well, but look at what's going on here. and Look at what's going on here. And, and in their case, they actually, uh, there, there began to be an earthquake and, and, and Mount Humongous was about to erupt. And, and the scientists told them that, that the, the world was going to end as they knew it. It was going to destroy their whole community and their whole town. But SpongeBob just kept looking up saying, but today is going to be the best day ever. And even if I have one day left, I want that day to be the best day day ever. Well, coming from SpongeBob, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of great theology rooted in his, uh, his understanding of that positive thinking. But what I want you to understand is this is not, it, it doesn't have to just be about positive thinking or positive profession of some type. Because if the Lord owns the earth and everything in it. And if he is in authority over everyone on the earth, and he's not only that powerful, but he's so loving that he sent his son to die on a cross for me so that I could have eternal life, that I could spend the rest of my life with him, then every day, every Christian should be willing to get up and say, today is gonna be the best day ever. Not because of the circumstances, but because we worship and we serve a God who is king. What if I'm in a car wreck and I die today? It just gets better. What, what, if, what if the clouds part at noon and, and the Lord returns? It's going to be the best day ever. But what if that doesn't happen today? He still is on his throne. He still is the king of kings. He's still the Lord of lords. And you and I don't have any reason to walk around this, this earth moping because we serve a God who reigns, a God who, is, who loves us enough to offer us this gift of eternal life, a God who loves us enough to take care of us, and he's powerful enough to do it. See, if God was really, 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 really loving, but he didn't own everything, and he wasn't sovereign, and he wasn't in control, then all of that love may be wonderful, but it's not a lot of help. And if he's super powerful, and he sits up in the, above the heavens somewhere, and he controls things, and he runs things, and he can, he can strike down his enemies with a thunderbolt in a moment, or he can dissolve the earth with heat in, in a flash with a spoken word, that's awesome. But if he doesn't love us, 
then what good is it to me? But see, we serve a God who not only is powerful, who does own it all, he is the king of glory, he is mighty in power, scripture says here, if, if we serve a God who is Lord, who is sovereign, and who reigns, and who put his love on display so that he dealt with my sin through his son, sent his son to die on a cross so that I could step into his presence. Ascend the mountain in spiritual terms and walk in a relationship with him. And when we get up each day and look up, lift your heads, verse 7 says. Lift your heads, verse 9 says. We look up and we see who reigns. We see who's on the throne and we see his son. We can declare that day and every day going forward is going to be the best day ever. Not because of some fake positive expression, but because he is the Lord and he loves me with all of his heart. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.